0: As you saw in the, in the booklet, this is the workshop on um, the Gospel, or Christ our Righteousness. We, uh, it's the title that we have given to this workshop, um, and subtitle, A Fresh Look at the Law, the Covenants, and the Gospel. Uh, these are things that I think are incredibly interesting, and that we definitely need to continue to study, uh, because there's just so much depth in it. Um, And so what we're going to do this afternoon is we're going to look at uh, the Ten Commandments and I think that what is going to be presented uh, by God's grace will be kind of a very fresh understanding of them and also a new look at them as to what their role is in our lives as Christians. So um, we will have a word of prayer and since our time is limited uh, we'll get right into it. So let's, let's pray together as we get started. Father in heaven, we are grateful for um, all the different workshops that are taking place, and we want to pray that you'll bless each one of them. Uh, We ask also that you'll be with us now, Lord, as we study together uh, the role of the law, the Ten Commandments, and how um, this works in our lives as Christians. Uh, I pray that you will be present with us to guide us and lead us, and uh, we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. well, we're going to start... our time together. If you have your Bible, I hope you do. Otherwise, you can maybe follow with someone that does have one. We'll be looking at a, a number of verses together, um, and we'll start in the book of Romans, which has um, been a book that I very much enjoy studying. And we'll look a little bit more at the book of Romans uh, in the course of this um, uh, this works these workshop sessions. Probably our third session, we'll spend most time in the book of Romans. But I just want to start there today. Um, And if we go to Romans chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 19 and 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And we're looking at the role of the Ten Commandments, the role of God's law. And take notice what Paul writes here. This is written by the Apostle Paul, and he says... Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And that's an expression that Paul uses a number of places uh, in the New Testament, this expression of being under the law. We're going to talk in a moment about what that exactly means. Uh, Then he goes on to say that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin okay, so so he's talking about two things that I really want to want us to look a little bit um, deeper at here he's talking about being under the law and he talks about the law being bringing the knowledge of sin um, and this role of the law is basically um, widely understood by um, among Christians today, that the law is that which shows us what sin is, and it's of course a very important um, function of the law. Because if you think about it, if you don't know what sin, if you don't know what sin is, if sin is not defined, uh, then uh, yeah, then we might as well just you know <laughs> keep sinning. But once sin is defined, right, by the law, we know what it is. Then we also need to start looking at well, you know, how do we be, how do we get set free from from sin. Uh, and that happens, of course, through Jesus Christ, but the the, the role of the law here is really to show that we are sinners, that we have a need of salvation, Uh, but oftentimes this is where where many stop, okay, that's the role of the law, it's like a mirror, you look in that mirror, reveals who you are, reveals that you're a sinner, reveals your need for Christ as a savior, uh, and that's it. What we want to do this afternoon in our time together is look a little bit deeper, though, Is there any other function that the Ten Commandments or God's law has other than showing that we are sinners? Um, And I'll just say right away where I want to head with this, and then we'll kind of develop it. Um, I believe that the Ten Commandments, in their first function, are like a mirror revealing that we are sinners. It gives us a knowledge of sin. But in its second function, that the Ten Commandments or the law reveal in a powerful, beautiful way the character of God, and also, uh, in that character of God, the purpose that he has for us to reflect that character. And so, what we're talking about here this afternoon are the two functions of God's law, the Ten Commandments. Number one, to reveal that we're a sinner, to reveal our need for a savior, right? Number two, to reveal the character of God that we are to reflect in our lives. Now we're going to kind of walk through this and we're going to go to the Ten Commandments and we're going to see how this all uh, plays out. Now, uh, let's first talk a little bit more about the first function, though. Uh, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 that we just read, Paul talks about the law bringing us a knowledge of sin. But he also used that phrase that we are um, under the law. We're all under the law. Um, which really when you look a little bit deeper at that text and other texts where Paul uses that expression, um, what is being implied is that we are under the condemnation of the law. The law reveals that we are sinners, right? And without a savior, we would be, we would be lost. Um, that expression of being under the law has oftentimes been misunderstood because what you will find in, uh, a number of of, of Christians saying is that, well, you know, um, we are now no longer under the law because now Christ has come. So we are no longer obliged to live by the Ten Commandments. In other words, the Ten Commandments are done away with. That's maybe an expression that you've heard. Um, But let us look look a little bit closer at what what this exactly means with this expression um, under the law. If you turn with me to the book of Galatians, you're in the book of Romans turn to the book of Galatians, and we'll go to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians in the third chapter, and verse 24 and 25. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. Listen to what it says here. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor, or another word for tutor is like a teacher, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, but after, the, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, or if you, some translations will directly say under the law. So here, Paul says we're no longer under the law once we have received Christ by faith. Uh, which many have interpreted as, okay, now we are no longer under the Ten Commandments. Christ came, you know, saved us, died for us. We no longer have to follow the Ten Commandments today. That's uh, oftentimes understood that way within uh, the larger body of Christianity. Um, Now, why do we then, as Seventh-day Adventists, put so much focus on the Sabbath, you know? Uh, Because there are a lot of verses in the Bible, of course, that also indicate in the New Testament that... um, If we love God, we keep his commandments. The commandments are written in our heart. Um, So then we must understand what does it really mean with this expression under the law. Um, And once we understand that in the first function of the law that it is to reveal that we are sinners, then we understand that in that function we are under the condemnation of the law. We are under the law. But in the second function of the Ten Commandments, we're going to find out in just a moment, There is no more condemnation. Because in the second function, the law that once condemned us is now written in our hearts. So, um, Galatians chapter 3 is is bringing um, us to see that we are either living by faith in Christ, and then we are no longer under the law, or we are living under the law, under the condemnation of the law, as sinners... And we have no faith in Christ, right? So, so here it is uh, reflected, basically, these two, um, um, two places, uh, we could say. Now, the function of the law to be like a mirror, to reveal us that we are uh, sinners, uh, is a function that, that is very important. Um, because, again, if we didn't know what was sin, then we would just continue doing it, Right? So, so the law must reveal that. It's very important. But um, as we look at God's plan for us, the plan of restoration, the plan of the gospel, obviously God wants to do more for us than leave us in that, you know, in that place where the law merely condemns us, that we are under the condemnation of the law. Right? What God wants to do is actually revealed in the book of Hebrews... Uh, in the New Covenant promise, and if you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, look at what the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 16 and 17. Hebrews, the 10th chapter and verse 16 and 17.
1: Someone that has the English
0: Bible can go ahead and read that. Hebrews 10, verse 16 and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Right, thank you. So, what does God want to do in this covenant? He wants to take those commandments... And he wants to write them somewhere. He wants to write them in our hearts and in our minds. Now think about that for a moment. Um, The first time that God wrote his commandments, where did he write them on? What did he write them on? Stone. On stone, right? In the Old Testament, Moses went up on the mount. God writes with his own finger his ten commandments in stone and gives it to Moses, Right? Now here in this covenant relationship that we read about here in Hebrews chapter 10 we see that God's purpose is not just to write commandments in stone but he also wants to write it in the hearts of man. Of course he wanted to do that already at that time that he wrote it in stone. He also wanted to write it in their hearts. And today he wants to do the same thing. He wants to write his commandments in our hearts. And this is a good way of, of, of thinking about it of, 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 um, of understanding these two functions. Either the law of God is outside of us or it is inside of us. When the Ten Commandments are outside of us, they are like a mirror. And even in the book of James, we don't have time to go there right now, but it talks about the law as a mirror. And um, when the law is outside of us, the Ten Commandments, what does it do? It condemns us because we look into those commandments and we see, wow, we come short. Every single one of us, even if we think that we're doing good, the commandments reveal that we're not doing that good. Uh, even Jesus, he elaborates upon the commandments. He says, you know, you heard about adultery, you know, but I say unto you that even if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So he even elaborates upon the commandments to show that everyone is under the condemnation of um, God's law. We're all under the law. We're all sinners. But it doesn't stop there. Because now we must put our faith in Christ. and what does, what does God do then when we put our faith in Christ? He takes those commandments that were first outside of us that revealed us our condition. He takes those same commandments. and according to the book of Hebrews chapter 10, he writes those commandments on our heart, in our mind. And in this way, it is that we' are inviting God's spirit into our life because, the one that wrote the commandment will also be the one that lives those commandments in us. It is Christ in you. Um, That's why uh, in Galatians, Paul could say, um, we are under the the law, but then we put our faith in Christ, and then we're no longer under the law. It doesn't mean that we're not living by the law, but we're no, no longer under the condemnation of the law, because the law that was outside of us has now been written in our heart through faith in Christ. That makes sense? So that, that's where we're heading here. And this is so important for us because um, there's such a misunderstanding uh, about this within Christianity. And even within Adventism, it's very important that we take a fresh look at the role of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are a mirror. They do reveal our need as sinners. Because we need to understand that we're sinners in order to appreciate a savior. So yes, the first role is revealing to me that I come short. And, 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 and we, the first verse that we read there in the book of Romans chapter 3, it says all the world comes short. All the world. It's not just. It's no, one, no one is exempt here. But then that law that condemned, that law that showed I was a sinner, that same law, when I put my faith in Christ, is written in my heart. And when it's written in my heart... and the the Spirit works that law in my life. I'm no longer under the condemnation of the law, but now I'm revealing the character of God. And so we want to talk a little bit about that then. How does that work with the Ten Commandments, the law of God, being the character of God? Um, And let's before we go go there, we'll we'll look at one more verse, and then we'll go to the Ten Commandments. Uh, Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And um, we'll read here from verse 24. Or actually, it's verse, I'm thinking of verse 22 and 23. 22 and 23, Galatians chapter 5. Listen to what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self control i'm just going to stop there before i read the last verses there now that description if you would have to say if you have to say a name or a person who is described here who would that person be christ yeah exactly christ right i mean all those characteristics of the fruit of the spirit are really characteristics of jesus right Jesus was the embodiment of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, these are the fruits of the Spirit that God wants to bring into our lives. Now, once we put our faith in Christ, and Christ starts changing us, and with His Spirit working in us, developing these fruits, or this fruit of the Spirit, look, what, look at what it, ha, what, what it says now in the end of verse 23, because if we can grasp this, this is so powerful. Um, in the end of verse 23, it says, against such, what does it say in your Bible? There is, no law. there is no law. Against such, there is no law. Never thought about that. So you have here all these characteristics of Christ, the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, and then it says, against such, there is no law. What does it mean? That the law, the Ten Commandments, does not condemn these actions. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is in complete harmony with the law of God. The law of, They are not under the condemnation of the law. I mean, because this is a perfect reflection of Christ. It's a perfect reflection of God. And so against such there is no law. Now, if we have the fruit of um, the flesh, which is also described here in Galatians chapter 5, just before the fruit of the Spirit, um, against such there is a law. Against such there is a law. Because what, what does the law say about the fruit, the fruit of, of the flesh? It says, not in harmony, not in harmony, not in harmony, not in harmony, right? So against such there is a law. But when the fruit of the Spirit is developed in us, when we put our faith in Christ, then suddenly, hey, there's no law against this. Against such there is no law. The law is in harmony with the character of God, the character of Christ. So let us then look at the commandments. Turn to um, Exodus chapter 20 now. And let us take a look at how this basically plays out then. Um, Let's go shortly in our remaining time here. We don't have a lot of time, but let's let's try in the next 35 minutes or so to just look, have a fresh look at the Ten Commandments. And what we're going to do is each time we're going to take a commandment and we're going to apply the two functions of the law. Function number one, how does this commandment function as a mirror to reveal, you know, sin? How does this give a knowledge of sin? And then we're going to apply it in a second way, how does this reveal the character of God? Okay? Or how, how, how can this be reflected in my life so I can reflect the character of God? So, and I think this is going to be really good. I, I think this is really um, um, very, very important for us as Christians to understand the two functions of the law. Now... Let's start in verse 1 because it's oftentimes what we do is we go to uh, Exodus chapter 20 and we start basically in verse 3, which is the first commandment. But it is important for us to get also verse 1 and 2 in there because there's something crucial there that kind of lays the foundation for every commandment that follows. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. Before God gives them any commandment he first reminds them of something important. He reminds them that he has delivered them out of slavery, out of bondage the bondage of Egypt. This was very, very important because uh, we have to think back for a moment. How did God do that? Now, you remember, I think many of us will remember the story. Uh, God used Moses, sent Moses into the land of, of, of Egypt, and he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Did Pharaoh do that immediately? No. How many plagues did it take? Ten plagues, right? So the people were not delivered by the first plague. They weren't delivered by the second plague, it took 10 of them, and there was something decisive that happened during the 10th plague that ultimately um, kind of spinned or, 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 or basically made the exodus happen. Now, let's, let's just kind of recall this um, for a moment. Does anyone remember what the 10th plague was? Remember what happened? of yeah, the firstborn. Exactly. of the firstborn of the Egyptians, right? Now, at the same time, God said to his people, and we're not going to read this for time's sake, but if, you want to, if you're taking notes, you can write down Exodus 12, because that's basically what I'm, what I'm referring to here. In Exodus 12, God speaks through Moses and says to the people, select a lamb. And the lamb was not to just be any lamb, it was to be a lamb without blemish. So basically the best lamb they have. Not a sick one, not a maimed one, a good lamb lamb without blemish. they were to take that lamb and in exodus 12 it tells about how they were to take it on a select day and that was to become the 10th day of the first jewish month by the way this was the very time that the jewish year was introduced they didn't have months and and all this kind of system before this time but god says okay the exodus is going to mark the first month of your year from now on And God said, and and the day that you select this lamb is going to be the 10th day of this first month. And then on the 14th day of this first month, what were they to do with the lamb? What do you think? What did they have to do eventually with that lamb? You remember? They were to slay the lamb, to kill it, and to take the blood. And the blood was to be put on the doorpost. Remember that? so that when the angel of destruction moved through Egypt and in the English language this is kind of significant we call it the feast of Passover because the angel passed over the homes where there was blood on the doorpost Right. this is why we refer in English it's referred to the, the feast of Passover now this resulted in Pharaoh saying okay enough is enough you guys are out and the next morning they left they left Egypt they left the bondage all the plagues had taken place, nine plagues, and every time Pharaoh said, "Oh, I changed my mind. You can't go." The tenth plague was something different. It was something that made them, you know, get out there, and it took uh, the life of these lambs, these these these, these sacrifices. Now, um, think about that for a moment. That lamb, who did it point forward to? Jesus, right? Do you know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the evening of the ninth day of the first Jewish month, and then from the tenth day till the fourteenth day, he was publicly teaching and publicly seen, um, and then uh, eventually, of course, he was—you um, know—he was taken uh, captive. And um, uh, this all led up to the crucifixion. Jesus was crucified on the 14th day of the first Jewish month, exactly on Passover. Um, Jesus says, he says, you know, the last thing that he said is, it is finished, right? And at that very moment, the Bible tells us that the veil in the sanctuary down in, in Jerusalem was ripped in two, signifying, you know, that these, all these sacrifices that had been taking place had now reached... or or met their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There's a lot more we could say about that, but I don't want to get too much off track here. But what what I want us to see is the following. That in Exodus chapter 20, when God gives his commandments, he makes it very clear that they are not to forget how they came out of Egypt. And how they came out of Egypt was through the Passover lamb, right? And the Passover lamb points to the crucifixion of Jesus. So what we're actually seeing here is that right before the commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20, even before the first commandment is given, God is showing us here a picture of the cross in typological language because, of course, we're here before the cross happened. But we're we're looking, basically, Jesus is reminding them of an event that pointed forward to the cross. That's how they were delivered out of Egypt, through the Passover lamb. Right, um, and this was by the way always to be remembered every year the Jews would celebrate Passover and what were they celebrating when they celebrated Passover that they were set free from Egypt that they were set free think about that for a moment for you and for me because we might think well I've never been in Egypt I've never been a slave so I can just start in verse 3 the first commandment actually each one of us all of us have been in Egypt it's just another kind of Egypt it's the slavery of sin Right? We have all been enslaved by sin. and we, we, are, we are enslaved by sin. We're living in a world that is, that, that is, we are surrounded by it. But it is through the death of the Lamb, through the death of Christ, that we are set free from sin. And so right at the foundation of the Ten Commandments, we have a picture of the cross, a picture of salvation. And this is the way we should think about it. Every commandment that follows is only possible because of the Passover lamb. So, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I will not have any God before you, Lord, because of the Passover lamb. Right? You know, and think of every commandment like that, you know? Uh, you know, think, every single commandment is in the light of verse 2. The remembering of how we came out of Egypt. How we are set free from sin. It's through the Passover lamb. It's through Jesus and his death and resurrection. Okay, So with that in mind, let's let's move here to verse 3 then. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Now, if we take that commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and we apply it in the first role of God's law, the first function of God's law, it's like a mirror, okay? I look into that mirror, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and it condemns me. I'm under the law. I'm under the condemnation of the law because in my life I have so many things that I treasure more than God, right? There's so many things that, I've, that, that, that have been more important for me than God. And so when I look into that commandment, it's like, whew, yeah, I'm a sinner. I am in need of salvation. And so when I look at that law and I look into that mirror and I see my own condition, I'm, I'm aware that, oh, I must, I must have a savior. I must be set free. Now, when I claim then the power of God and the power of the the Holy Spirit. When I put my faith in Jesus, then that commandment that first condemned me, what's God gonna do now with that commandment? What is He gonna do? He's gonna write it where? Write it in my heart. And when it's written in my heart, this commandment that once was condemning me now becomes a beautiful promise. Think of it this way. And it, it's, it's even the tone in which we read it. You can read it in the tone of, you shall have no other gods before me, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, I have a lot of other gods. <laughs> you know, I have a lot of other things that are more important. But now, when I love God, when I love him from all my heart, it's really God is giving me a promise. And he's saying, you don't need any other gods before me. I will be everything to you, right? I'll be everything to me. You don't need any other gods, Because you have made the God, the eternal God, the creator God, the very center of your life. And so, in the second function here, we see very clearly that God's law is written in our hearts. And then, it's a beautiful promise. God tells you and me, you don't need Anything else, I will be everything for you. I'll fulfill the greatest needs that you have, the deepest desires. I'll satisfy that thirst of your soul, that thirst of your heart. I'll be everything for you. Look at the second commandment. We don't have time to read it all, so I'm just going to read the first sentence. You're familiar with this one. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And it goes on to describe um, what kind of images that are not to be made. Now... um, When you think about the second commandment, uh, the word image is basically the first time that you find that word is all the way back in creation, because there was one thing that God created in his image, and that is you and me, mankind. And so God does not want us to create him in our image, but he wants to create us in his image, Right? It's like, you can think of it this way, with the, the, the potter and clay analogy, which is also used in Jeremiah chapter 18, where God says, I'm the potter, you're the clay. Which which makes sense. God is the creator. He forms us. He fashions us. He makes us in His image, right? What many times has happened today is we have turned that upside down, and we've made ourselves the potter and God is the clay. And so, my God is like this. And we form God in our image, rather than we allow God to form us in His image. And and that, this, is, this is very happens um, a lot um, and so when I look into that second commandment in the first function of the law what does it do? It again condemns me I'm under the law, it condemns me and it shows me that I, I sin because yeah I've tried to create God in my own image, I've made an image of God maybe I haven't made it in wood like in the old times, you know we think of this commandment oftentimes in, in history like yeah they used to you know carve God out in gold and stone and silver, we might not use that but we carve God out in our minds, right? We, have a, we, not, we might not have a metal image, but we have a mental image, which is also um, disregarding the second commandment. It's, it's, it's uh, breaking the second commandment when we make an image of God that is not based upon his self-revelation in his word. So if I say, well, you reveal yourself to be like this God, but I would rather that you were like this, right? My, I make God in my image instead of allowing him to reveal himself in his image. That's that's the first function to, to show us that we are doing that that, that 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 we are breaking the commandments because we have pictured God in a way that he's not, right? But now again, when I put my faith in Christ and when I come closer to God and I and I ask God to write that commandment in my in, in my heart, when I want God to reveal something about himself to me, then the commandment that first condemned now suddenly again becomes a beautiful promise because what is, what is God saying to us in the second commandment? He's basically saying, you don't have to guess who I am. You don't have to make an image out of you know, whatever it is. To, to, to You don't have to use your imagination as to who I am. I will reveal myself to you. Right? The fact that you don't need to make a carved image is saying like, I will be there for you. I will reveal myself to you. You know, it's like you saying to someone, you don't need a picture of me, you know. I'll actually spend time with you, you know. You don't have to carry around the picture. I don't carry around a picture of my wife, you know. Well, if I'm traveling, I might have a picture of her with me, but you know what I mean. I'm not carrying around like, ah, I have a very nice picture of my wife. I'm enjoying this picture, you know. No, I would rather spend real time with my wife, right, face to face, together, And what God is saying to you and to me is, you don't have to make an image. I mean, is that what you want, an image? I have something far better than an image. I will spend real time with you. I'll come close to you. So again, God's commandment becomes a beautiful promise. What first was condemning, or in other words, revealing sin, which is also a very important function. I'm not negating the first function of the law. By the way, it's, it's crucial, it's important, otherwise we wouldn't understand our need. But we shouldn't stay there, right? Let the law come into our heart. Let God reveal who He is. And then God is saying, You know what? You don't need any other gods. I'll be everything for you. Second commandment, I will reveal myself to you. You don't have to carry around an image. I'll reveal myself. Beautiful. Now think about the third commandment. Verse 7. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, many times when we think about the third commandment, we immediately think about pronunciation, like, you know, how do we, what do we say? What are our words? Uh, How do we pronounce the, you know, the name of God? And of course, there there is an importance in those elements, but this commandment goes so, so much more deeper than that because if you do a little word study of the name of God, you'll find out very quickly that throughout Scripture, The name of God is equivalent to his character. Uh, For example, one instance, um, and I'll just give you the reference here. In um, Exodus chapter 33 and 34, an interesting scenario there. Moses, he has this communication with God, and he says to God, show me your glory. You know, I want to see who you really are. And then God says to him, well, okay, um, God basically on condition reveals himself to Moses because God knows that if he would reveal his fullness to Moses... Moses wouldn't be able to handle that. He would die instantly if God just showed his all, all his glory. So in Exodus 34, he takes him up on the mountain, puts him in the cleft of the rock. You might remember the story. God passes by before him. And what does God do? God proclaims his name. He proclaims his character. He says, okay, this is who I am. And he starts just giving characteristics, right, of who he is, an explanation of his character. So the name of God is equivalent to the character of God. Now, in order for us to not take the name of the Lord in vain, that means, again, not to misrepresent His character, right? The name, the character, who He really is. Now, in the first function of the law, the law is like a mirror, I look into that law, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And I see, oh man, how many times in my life have I misrepresented God? I mean, in my words, in my actions, in my being, so many times have I given a wrong representation of what it means to be a Christian. I mean, we can all, we can all say that. We've all come short. For the, of the glory of God. We've all come short of the commandments of God. And so this commandment, like it, it says, oh no, it, we are under the condemnation of it. We see our weakness, we see our frailty in representing God for who He is. But again, we don't stay there. right? Because now, what do we do? When we see our need, we say, oh Christ, I need you more than anything else. You're the Savior of my life. Please come into my life. And when Christ comes into our life and He writes the commandments on our hearts, And the fruit of the Spirit, or the character of God, is manifested within us. Then again, what once was a law that condemned us, now becomes again a beautiful promise. Because what is God saying? What is He saying with this commandment about His name? He is again saying that He is going to bring His name into our lives. He's going to bring His character into our lives. In in other words, uh, this commandment becomes like a promise. You shall not misrepresent me anymore. I will work in you so that you represent me for the one that I am. And do you know that this is the big promise to the final generation living before Jesus comes back the second time? Do you know that in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1, it says that God wants to write his name on the foreheads of the 144,000? Now think of that for a moment. 144,000 are those that are living when Jesus comes back. This is the final generation. This is not talking about some kind of a tattoo, by the way, like God writing his name in your forehead. It's symbolic language of God writing his commandments, his character in your mind, right? It's represented in your life. So again, it becomes this amazing, beautiful promise. Now let's go to Commandment 4. and This is my favorite one. I could spend more than an hour just on, on the Fourth Commandment and the beauty of the Fourth Commandment, but I'm going to try to do it um, in, in a number of minutes here since we are time is ticking away. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. I need that, more than that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Now, I'm not going to read the whole commandment, but um, let me just read verse, uh, verse 8 there. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then it goes on, you know, six days you shall work and do all your work, and the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not work, neither you are. And then it explains uh, basically your whole household. And then it says, for in six days the Lord's you know, made everything. So it reminds us of creation. Now, when it comes to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, again, Let's apply it now for the first function of the law. I look into the mirror of the law, and uh, I'm not really regarding, you know, the Sabbath as anything special. Um, I, I, you know, it's it's just just another day like any other day. And so the law reminds me, hey, I, this this is not right. This is a special time. So I'm under the condemnation of the law. But then I take hold of Christ. I take hold of God. I ask Him to write. His commandment in my heart. He starts writing the commandment, and now I have a whole new understanding of the Sabbath commandment. And this is something so 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 on my heart as a Seventh Day Adventist because I think in a, in a major way, as Seventh Day Adventists, we have we have underestimated the beauty of the Sabbath. If I would do a little survey within Adventism, and I would ask the question, what is important about the Seventh Day Sabbath? Many times the answer, let, let me say it like this, many times the answer will be that Saturday is the Sabbath. Not Sunday. Not Sunday. <laughs> and, and that is totally correct. There's not anything wrong with that answer. Actually, there's a lot right about that answer. It is perfectly right. But that's not the whole truth. Like, if you ask me, um, tell, me tell me about marriage, okay? And I say, I'm married to Sylvia. That is true that I'm married to Sylvia, but there's a lot more to marriage than me having the right person. There's a lot more to the Sabbath than it being the right day. You get this point? So, so that it's Saturday is very important. But if, it's, if that's the only thing that is important about the Sabbath, it's on Saturday and not on Sunday, then we've basically missed the underlying beauty that the Sabbath actually teaches us. There's so much more. Now, it's important that it's on the Sabbath day, the Saturday, but let's look a little bit deeper, though, at this commandment. Think about this. When God created the world in Genesis chapter 1, and then you move into chapter 2, the first verse is there in chapter 2, it says that he chose to sanctify, and that's a very important word, it is to set aside something for a specific holy use, to sanctify time. Now think about that. The seventh day is time, right? Time is what God, time is the first thing that God sanctified, okay? He could have sanctified a place, he could have sanctified an object, he could have sanctified whatever he wanted to sanctify, but he chose to sanctify Time. Now that now that should already kind of get us into the mode of asking the kind of question like, why? <laughs> why did God choose to sanctify time? Listen to this. In many religions today, uh, you go to Islam, you go to, you know, you look at Buddhism, Hinduism, um, you will find that in some of the major religions of today, there is either a place that is sanctified or a object that is sanctified. You know, you look within uh, within Islam, every uh, committed Muslim is required or supposed to take a pilgrimage to Mecca one time in their life, right? So you have a holy place. Within Hinduism, you have a lot of holy objects, right? But in God's, uh, God's way of doing things, He says, I'm not going to sanctify a place, I'm not going to sanctify an object, I'm just going to sanctify time. Now, what does that say? What does that tell us about the character of God? It tells us a lot about the character of God. Think about it. If there is a place that is sanctified, right? Let's say, okay, I'm standing right here. Let's say, just for a matter of illustration here, the door is the sanctified place. Now, who's going to move? I don't think the door is going to move to me. <laughs> right? So, in order for me to experience God, or experience this sacred or place, what what do I have to do? I have to move, right? I have to go. So, uh, with a sanctified place, you have to go to that place. With a sanctified object, you have to possess that object. You have to go to that object. Now look at this. God says, I don't sanctify a place or, or, or an object. I sanctify time because time is accessible to everyone and it's always coming to you. Think about this. If you were locked up in a prison and you couldn't go anywhere, you would be in trouble if you, you know, were in some religions where you, oh, I don't have the holy objects. Oh, I can't go to the holy place. God comes to you. The seventh day Sabbath is both accessible to every single living human being in this world, and it's accessible when this time comes, right? I can be... Uh, We can be locked up in this room for the rest of our lives, and the Sabbath will always be coming to us, right? Because time always comes, and it's accessible to us all. What is this saying about the character of God? God pursues us, right? He he wants, he he loves us, he wants us, he he has a deep desire for a relationship with every one of us, and the Sabbath reveals that in a remarkable, remarkable way, Um, one other thing I would like to say about this, and that is that when you look at the creation account, there's a beautiful pattern in creation. God creates space, and He fills the space. You know, He 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 divides the firmaments. That's what He did, and then He fills you know the heavens with stars and planets, and He fills you know the sky with birds. He fills you know uh, the the earth with with vegetation. Then He you know He divides the the sea and the land, and He fills the sea with with the sea creatures and the land with the animals, and so. The, the pattern you'll see in Genesis chapter 1 is creating space and filling up that space. Creating space, filling up that space. And then <laughs> you come to the seventh day. And what does God do? He creates a 24-hour space. But what does he fill it with? Himself. himself. He fills it with himself. It's like he creates 24 hours. And then, it, and then he calls it sanctified and then, he, and then he puts himself in there, right? It's powerful, it's beautiful. The Sabbath, my friends, it's more than a matter of getting the right day. It's getting the right person, right? And it is God, it is God that, that, that has put himself in time. He says, I'm coming to you. Wherever you are in the world, I'm coming, and I will be your God. You see that the Ten Commandments, my friends, is a beautiful revelation of the character of God, and it's a beautiful progression, God in the first commandment says, you don't need any other gods. I'll be everything for you. Second commandment, you don't have to wonder what I'm like. You don't have to make some image about me. I'll be with you. Third commandment, I'll write my name in your life. You will represent me. And then the fourth commandment, I am coming to you. Sabbath. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, I get excited about that. I think, wow, that, that is incredible. I mean, that's the God that we serve. And again, this is, this is the marvelousness of the word of God, the marvelous of the gospel and the law, is that it has both functions very strongly. So that at one point of our experience, we can look at the law and it is a it, 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 it shows us that we are sinners. And at the same time, we can look at that same law that is now written in our hearts and we can see a perfect revelation of the character of God. I mean, only the spirit of God can do something like that. And every time that we disconnect from God, again, the first function is there. It's not that that first function goes away, that, okay, I, I don't have that anymore, and I have this. Every time we disconnect from God, the law is there graciously to remind us that we're sinners and our need for God, graciously that that function is there. So that we, And that's why that's why Paul said, it's the tutor, it's like the teacher, it's like the one that pushes us to Jesus. Like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, go there, right? It, it's, it's amazing. Um, I am ticking. Let's, let's look at the remaining ones, though, because, and, and we'll do this a little bit. Um, we'll do it like this. The Ten Commandments com- can basically be, d- be divided between the first four and the latter six. The first four deal with our relationship with God, right? The latter six deal with our relationship with those around us. And uh, this is why this is so great, because once our connection with God is firm and, and, and strong, Uh, also this will have an impact in how we treat those around us. The fifth commandment deals with the effect of God's presence in our life, of his spirit working in our life, and this effect being manifested within the family. Uh, This is a commandment that deals with the family. I'll just uh, read it here in verse 12. um, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Okay, so um, and, and I like this because when you think about it, you know, the power of God, if that cannot be manifested within those to those that are closest to us, how can we ever manifest it to any other people? I mean, it is easy for me to get on a plane and to go to Africa or to go to Asia and to be a missionary for a week. It's not hard. It's much harder to be a missionary in my home, to my wife, to my you know, children, parents, relationships that are close. That's where the challenge comes. What basically, what we're seeing in the 10 commandments is God is saying you know, that his promises are, 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 are for a holistic life. I mean, this is not just for, for you when you go once a year on a mission trip somewhere else. No, this, this, these characteristics can be manifested in the home. Again, we can take that commandment and we can apply the two functions. The first function, we look into the law as a mirror, and we see, no, I have not been respectful to those that are closest to me. And and by the way, that commandment is not just dealing with relationships between children and, and parents, but it's basically you can apply the principle of that commandment to any relationship, you know, that is close, whether it be husband wife or 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 brother sister or you know, um, child parent, as in this situation. Um, we look into that long, we, we, we come short. We, we're not manifesting the love that we should to those that are the nearest us. But then again, when we invite Christ into our life and we invite him to write that commandment on our heart, suddenly that commandment comes a beautiful promise because God is saying, you know what? You know what? You can be a representative of me and you can even be it in your home. Don't have to travel very far. will start. It will start in the home. It will start with those that are closest to you through the power. God is promising us you can honor your father and your mother. You can honor your husband or your wife. You can honor your children. You can honor your brother and sister through the power of the Passover lamb, right? Remember everything in the light of the Passover lamb. Verse 2. That's what we're building on. Now, let's look, we're going to take the next three commandments basically together. Um, we have a couple of minutes left here. Verse 13, 14 and 15. It says this, the, the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandment: uh, "You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal." Now, if you would do a little, uh, if if you do a little survey, and uh, you would ask people, now of all the ten commandments, which one have you been best at, <laughs> to put it that way? Which one, which one have you not broken? <laughs> I think that a lot of people would say well, I'm not sure about them all, but at least number six, I haven't murdered a person. Okay, so, so okay, good for you. Check that one off, right? Like, okay, that's one thing I have not done. But then you know, Jesus comes along, and he just totally messes our picture. <laughs> because in Matthew chapter five, he, he says like, oh, you heard it said of all not, you shall not murder, but I say unto you that if you are, by the way, angry with your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. So. So Jesus basically you know, takes that commandment and deepens it, makes it a lot wider than we thought it first was. And then suddenly, you know, um, if we would say, oh, I did good on that one, what we did, I don't think we any of us you know, um, have uh, consistently uh, abided by that, by that law in our life. Uh, we've all had those moments of anger, frustration to, to those around us. Now, this again, the first function. And, and that's why it is a perfect mirror. It's kind of, you know these kind of mirrors? I don't know if you you, you know you, travel and you, you look in different mirrors. There's certain mirrors that just show everything, you know? It's that kind of a mirror. It's that kind of a mirror that you, I don't know if I want to look in that mirror very long. That's, but it's in mercy that God reveals it all. Right, it's, in, it's like God is showing like this is exactly who you are, and this you got to see because you got to understand your need of a savior. Otherwise, you wouldn't understand. And the enormity of your sin must be revealed in order for you to understand the enormity of God's grace. Right? So again, you see, okay, I, wow, I'm a murderer. I didn't know that. Now suddenly, <laughs> this this doesn't really feel good, but it's needed because now I realize that I need to be set free. I need to be set free, even when it comes to the sixth commandment and the seventh and the eighth. Because also, maybe with adultery, we say, no, never committed adultery. But what does Jesus say? He says, if you have looked at a woman and lusted after her, you have already committed adultery in your heart. That's also in um, Matthew chapter 5. And when it comes to stealing, we think of stealing often as like taking an object that is not ours. But again... The reality of it is stealing is, is, is a, already begins also in the heart, right? When you want something that's not yours. Jealousy. So, again, all of this in the first function reveals, oh, we need a savior. But then when we accept the power of God and we allow him to write those commandments in our heart, again, these become beautiful promises. And um, the beautiful promise in all of this is that, think if even in the way you read it, you know, the promise is, you shall not murder. You won't do it. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. God is saying, you won't do it. Trust in me. Abide in me. I will bring my spirit into your life. You know what? When you abide in me, you won't murder. You won't be angry with your brother even. I mean, this goes deeper than you actually physically killing someone. But God is saying, I will change your mind that you don't even become, you don't have to even hold on to that anger in your heart. You don't even have to hold on to that lust in your heart. I can set you free at the very place where the temptation begins, and that's not the act, that's the, that's the mind, the thoughts. So in other words, it's a promise that Christ can bring victory in our thoughts. Isn't that wonderful? And by the way, there's a verse for that that I just want to share quickly here. Maybe you're familiar with it. I love this verse in Corinthians, um, where it talks about... Every thought uh, being made subject um, to Jesus Christ. I think it's 2 Corinthians, if I I remember this correctly. Chapter 10? That's right, chapter 10 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, we'll actually begin in verse um, 4 and verse 5. Verse 4 and 5 in in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to what it says. I'm just going to keep you a couple of minutes longer here, but we'll, we'll we'll wrap this up in a moment. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Listen to the power of these words. Bringing some thoughts. What does it say? Every thought into captivity to be obedience of who? Obedience of Christ. So thoughts that you have, and, and, and you know, one, the moment that you realize that your thought is not in harmony with God, which is again the first function of the law. Wow, wow, that thought that I just had, that, that, that was not right, you know. Either it's a thought of jealousy, or a thought of lust, or a thought of anger. You realize the mirror is there. Oh, oh man. Hold on to Jesus. Turn to him. Pray to him at that moment. God, I believe your promise that you can bring every thought into captivity. Take this thought that I have right now. And take it into captivity. And He will answer that prayer, that sincere prayer. And you need to strive with that because it might not happen in one moment. But get on your knees, pray to the Lord, and He will set us free. And then that will become a beautiful promise because then what God does is He does give you victory. And then you realize that wow, the Ten Commandments, what a revelation of God. He can actually even set me free, not just from the acts, but He can set me free from those thoughts, right? That have brought me that, that I was once captive to. I've been set free through the Passover Lamb, through the death of Jesus and the resurrection. Alright, now let's go to the last two commandments quickly, and we'll look at this and then we will close here. I and I love these, this last part here. It it gets really good. Um, towards the end of the chapter here, look at verse 16. Uh, verse 16 and 17. These are the two last verses. Verse sixteen says, "You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." In modern terms, we would say, "You shall not lie." Right? This is, this this is about lying again. First function of law. Look into that commandment, and we see a perfect. Re- it's a perfect reflection of, uh, of 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 who we are, and we realize that hey, this is not just talking about a little white lie here. This is talking about we desperately misrepresenting God in the way that we the way that we talk and the way that we act because so many times, you know, there's, a, there's a, this false witness that comes out. You know, we, we say things that are not true. Now, once that commandment is written in our hearts and we've accepted Christ and, and He starts working in us, it becomes a promise because what, what is God saying here? I will change your heart and when your heart is changed... There's a verse, and I wish we could read this, but I'll just give you the reference here. Luke chapter 6, you can write it down if you're taking notes. It says that, um, of which the, and you could probably finish this verse. Of which the heart is full of, the mouth speaketh, right? Mm-hmm. The heart. What the heart is full of, the, well, I think it's a little bit different, I'm paraphrasing it here. What the heart is abundant of, the mouth speaks, something like that. So in other words, what, what, what you speak is basically what comes out of your heart, right? Now, this is the beautiful progression again. The Ten Commandments are like a beautiful progression. God is dealing with the heart. And once he has dealt with the heart, then naturally your words will be in harmony with his. Right? Beautiful. Now let's look at the Tenth Commandment. And this really uh, brings us back to where we began. Because it's almost like a frame around the Ten Commandments with the first and the last um, really speaking in harmony to each other. Uh, The 10th commandment is, you shall not covet, and it lists some things that we are not to covet. Now, again, first function of the law, I look into the commandments, and I see, oh man, I covet a lot of things, there are a lot of things that I want, besides God, that I think are more important than God, I think my career is more important, I think that relationship is more important, I think that pleasure, that entertainment is more important than God, right? I I realize my need, but then God writes that commandment in, in my heart, sets me free from those things. And once he does that, I see a picture of God that is more compelling than I can even describe with words. And the picture that I see is some beautiful God that I want to love so much that I won't covet anything else in my life because I want him more than anything else. And so it's God saying, you know, I will do something in your life that you won't covet. You won't. Because I'll be everything to you. Right? You won't need any other God as we started with in the first commandment. I will be everything to you. Once the Samaritan woman tasted of the living water that Jesus provided. She didn't want anything else, right? Once the disciples tasted of the grace of God, they were willing to die for that. They, they, they couldn't think of anything better. Say so There was nothing else. Like Peter said, who shall we go to? We've seen something. We've tasted something. There's nothing better than this. And this is exactly what is to happen in our lives. That when when the gospel really takes a hold of us, when God takes a hold of us, it's not about oh, uh, this is so boring. I've chosen for this life, and I, I'd rather do that, that, and that. But I, I'm stuck here because I'm duty bound, and I'm, I'm going to do it because I want heaven. That is a drudgery experience, right? If if duty is the if duty is what binds me to my wife, I'm married to Sylvia. Well, I, I said yes, so I have to like. Is there any, like, joy in that? Like, yeah, it's commitment, brother. Commitment. I'm not going to get divorced. I'm committed. But if Judy is the only commitment, if that's all there is, there's something missing. And that's not the relationship that God wants with us. God wants a relationship like, you know what? You don't want anything else. I don't want any other wife. My wife, I love her so much. I don't covet. I don't want anything else. She's everything to me. And this is what God wants to be to you. That you can say, God, you're everything to me. I don't covet those other things. This is the promise that God wants to bring into our lives. One last thing and we'll pray and we'll wrap it up here. And this is this. And this, this is kind of, I just want to kind of give you this idea to further study. You can take the Ten Commandments and you can do them absolutely backwards, what we just did. And that's basically what Lucifer did. Lucifer, the first thing that he did in heaven when he rebelled, is he coveted the position of God. Right? And then he started bringing a false witness to the other angels about the character of God. And he disobeyed every single commandment. But not in the order that we... He's he's moving in the opposite order. Do you know where you end up when you go that way? You make yourself God. And that's exactly what he said. First commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does Lucifer or Satan say? You know, I'm God. He wants to be God, right? He wants to be like the Most High. But if you are on that track there's one step that you still have to take because where do you end up if you're on that track? You've got to end up in verse 2. What was verse 2 about? Being setting free from bondage, but then you end up in bondage, right? So either we're coming out of bondage and we're allowing the commandments to transform us, the transforming grace of God, or we are in the footsteps of Lucifer and we're heading towards bondage, right? Right? Uh, That could be another sermon, but you can study that more on your own. It's very interesting. Uh, But it's time to close now. I, I hope this has been helpful, giving you a little bit of a fresh perspective, a fresh insight into the Ten Commandments. And it's my sincere prayer that you will look at the Ten Commandments with those two functions. Let it be the mirror that reveals your need for Christ. But more than that, let it also be a revelation of who God is. Amen? Okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for um, you being with us this afternoon. We're thankful for this session that we've had together. And we pray that your blessing may continue to guide us in our program uh, here at this ASI convention. So we thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.